You're listening to Purpose Inspired, a podcast series by myself, Wayne Visser. This season is based on my book, Sustainable Frontiers, Unlocking Change Through Business, Leadership and Innovation. Sustainable Tech in Africa, a case study. To understand the potential impact of sustainable technologies and why their adoption is often difficult, especially in developing countries, it is helpful to examine a specific case study. Let's look at CAVA, the Cassava Adding Value for Africa project, which promotes the production of high-quality cassava flour as an alternative for starch and other imported materials such as wheat flour. Kava has developed value chains for cassava flour in Ghana, Tanzania, Uganda, Nigeria and Malawi, aiming to improve the livelihoods and incomes of at least 90,000 smallholder households, including women and disadvantaged groups. The main opportunity for technology to make a difference is in the drying process. A flash dryer dries cassava mash very quickly, preventing fermentation. The flash dryers that were available in Nigeria before Carver's intervention were run on used motor oil or diesel and tended to be highly fuel inefficient and costly. Carver, which is led by the Natural Resources Institute of the University of Greenwich, working with the Federal University of Agriculture, Abiokuta, and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation evaluated the traditional flash dryers in 2009. Since then, they've introduced more efficient technology known as double cyclone flash dryers. These involve heat exchange systems using waste heat from one part of the process to feed into another part, as well as better insulation and faster drying speeds. The efficiencies have improved the diesel fuel to flour production ratio by a factor of 18 according to Carver tests, reducing costs and CO2 emissions. However, these achievements have not been easy. Over the past five years, Carver has learned 10 crucial lessons about the successful diffusion of more sustainable technologies in Africa. The first lesson is about capacity building. A critical part of the technology transfer process was that Carver mentored a Nigerian fabricator to produce a flash dryer that meets international standards. As a result, new engineering knowledge and skills are being developed and embedded locally. The second lesson is about regional trade and infrastructure. Carver organized experience sharing visits between cassava stakeholders in Western and Eastern Africa. Transporting a flash dryer from Nigeria to Malawi revealed significant constraints to technology transfer in the region due to poor transport infrastructure and high transaction costs, namely bureaucratic red tape. Lesson three is about value chain fluctuations. Technology can improve one part of the value chain, but changes in other parts can neutralize these benefits. For example, prices of fresh cassava roots can vary by more than 300% in one season. So Kava is also working with others to ensure that farmers obtain higher yield per unit area of cassava.
Lesson 4 is about macro trends. It is critical to monitor how changes in the macro environment could impact the technology investment. In Malawi, Carver identified large markets for cassava flour and organized raw materials in anticipation of the introduction of artificial drying. But due to a drought, cassava suddenly became a major primary food in a predominantly maize-consuming nation, resulting in a raw materials shortage. Lesson 5 is about working with investors. New dryers required investors willing to make an investment of $200,000. This difficulty was overcome by addressing the fuel inefficiency of the traditional flash dryers and working with potential investors on their business plans, identifying market opportunities and raw materials supply. Lesson 6 is about finance-dependent delays. For Carver, almost all project targets that were dependent on private investor decision-making have been off course. Technology projects need to include or seek guidance from private sector partners in determining their expectations and fixing their decision-making timelines within project cycles. Lesson 7 is about expectations management, the perception that technology interventions will bring financial or tangible handouts can lead to disappointment and even hostility from potential beneficiaries when these expectations are not met. This can be exacerbated by development agencies providing short-term donations. Lesson 8 is about policy support. Carver benefited from a favourable government policy environment in Nigeria, particularly between 2002 and 2007 when the presidential initiative on cassava was in operation. Currently, the cassava transformation programme of the federal government provides another favourable environment to promote the technology. Lesson 9 is about private sector partners. One of the big lessons from Carver was that their set of collaborative partnerships, although well-balanced in other respects, lacked private sector representation. As a result, when it came to getting access to capital, the technology adoption time was considerably delayed. And finally, lesson 10 is about spreading the benefits. To scale the positive impact, there are plans for spreading the more efficient flash dryer technology through South-South investments between developing countries. To this end, the Gates Foundation has funded demonstration projects in four additional countries, including Malawi, Ghana, Tanzania and Uganda. Why banning dangerous chemicals is not enough? Let's turn our attention now to another industry, chemicals. To feed the world's chemical addiction, production has had to grow rapidly over the last 40 years. Are companies doing enough to make products and processes safer for humans and the environment? The growth in chemical production in the past 40 years has been nothing short of explosive, with global output of 171 billion in 1970 burgeoning to a market of more than 4 trillion by 2010, an increase of more than 2,000%. By 2050, the market is expected to expand further to more than $14 trillion, an increase of more than 250% from 2010. 
with the BRICS countries dominating and accounting for more than 6 trillion together, 4 trillion for China alone. The message is clear. This is not an industry that is going away. We are all with our modern lifestyles totally hooked on chemicals, whether for energy, through petrochemicals, colorants, paints, inks, dyes and pigments, food production, including fertilizers and pesticides, health, including medicines, soaps and detergents, or beauty, including perfumes and cosmetics. Yet, like all drugs, chemicals have some serious side effects. The World Health Organization estimates that the chemical industry causes around a million deaths and 21 million disability-adjusted life years globally every year. Dailies, the disability-adjusted life years, are a measure of overall disease burden expressed as the number of years lost due to ill health, disability or early death. The main cause of these serious health impacts are acute poisoning, occupational exposure and lead in the environment. What's more, the WHO figures are almost certainly an underestimate since they exclude, due to incomplete data, chronic consumer exposure to chemicals and chronic exposure to pesticides and heavy metals such as cadmium and mercury. So here is the dilemma. Chemicals are harming people and even killing some. Yet because of their benefits and the world's addiction, they cannot be eliminated, even if the renewable energy and organic farming sectors continue their boom of recent years. Taking this as a starting point, the next question becomes, what has the chemical industry done to make its products and processes less hazardous? The industry has a self-regulatory program called Responsible Care, which was created in 1985. According to the International Council of Chemical Associations, 85% of the world's leading global chemical companies have already signed up to its global charter. The ICCA can show significant improvements in fatalities, injuries, carbon intensity and transportation incidents. Other impacts like water consumption, energy use and total carbon emissions are still heading in the wrong direction. All of this is part of ICCA's contribution to the UN's strategic approach to international chemicals management, which aims to achieve sound chemical management and to minimize significant adverse effects on the environment and human health. That sounds good, but is it working? The data suggests we have a long way to go. For example, in North America alone, 4.9 million metric tons of chemicals are released annually into the environment or disposed of. This includes nearly 1.5 million metric tons of chemicals that are persistent, bioaccumulative and toxic, as well as more than 756,000 metric tons of known or suspected carcinogens that cause cancer and nearly 667,000 metric tons of chemicals that are considered reproductive or developmental toxicants. Besides the health impacts of these emissions, the disruptive effects of chemical pollution on ecosystems also have significant economic consequences. The cost to the global economy of chemical pollution has been estimated at $546 billion. 
This is projected to rise to 1.9 trillion by 2050, or 1.2% of global GDP. 57% of these externalities are associated with listed companies and their supply chains, and $314 billion can be attributed to the largest 3,000 public companies in the world. Scary numbers. But the chemical industry says everything is under control. They are aware of the problems and are dealing with them, multilaterally and as a sector, through a plethora of initiatives, such as the Basel, Rotterdam and Stockholm Conventions, the US Toxic Release Inventory and the EU Registration, Evaluation, Authorization and Restriction of Chemicals Programme, or REACH. The ICCA's Chemicals Portal also offers free public access to product stewardship information. To date, product safety summaries are available for close to 3,500 chemicals. And besides these collective efforts, most large companies now also have lists of chemicals they ban and those they prefer, such as Nike's Considered Chemistry, Boots' Priority Substances list, SC Johnson's Green list, and Sony's Green Partners standards. However, the issue is that these are defensive actions, a bit like trying to lock up a fierce lion in a cage rather than taming it, or better still, exchanging it for a pet cat or dog. Can the chemical sector ever be sustainable? The answer is maybe. The big leap forward, with a tantalizing promise of not only making chemicals safer or less bad, but potentially harmless or even good, is the emerging green chemistry industry. Will green chemistry save us from toxification? A swathe of green chemistry initiatives could revolutionize the industry, but just taking the toxic stuff out isn't the answer. Ingredients and design need to change. The green label has been so abused over the past few decades that it is wise to suspect PR spin, what many call greenwashing. In the case of green chemicals, however, there is at least some serious thinking and extensive application to back up its claims. Let's start with what it means. The OECD defines green chemistry as the design, manufacture and use of efficient, effective, safe and more environmentally benign chemical products and processes. More specifically, green chemistry should use fewer hazardous and harmful feedstocks and reagents, improve the energy and material efficiency of chemical processes, use renewable feedstocks or wastes in preference to fossil fuels or mined resources, and design chemical products for better reuse or recycling. Popular categories of green chemistry include biochemical fuel cells, biodegradable packaging, aqueous solvents, white biotechnology, which is the application of biotechnology for industrial purposes, totally chlorine-free bleaching technologies, and green plastics. But can we trust green chemistry? One way to check is the US Environmental Protection Agency's Design for the Environment Safer Product Labeling Program. The Safer Chemicals Ingredients List contains chemicals that have been screened to exclude CMRs, that stands for 
carcinogens, reproductive or developmental toxicants and mutagens, and PBTs or persistent bioaccumulative and toxic compounds, as well as other chemicals of concern. At present, about 2,500 products carry the Design for Environment Safer product label with compliance verified by certifiers such as NSF Sustainability. Beyond this, there are a host of multi-stakeholder initiatives that give further guidance, checks and validity to claims, including Clean Production Actions Green Screen, Green Blues Clean Gredients and iSustain's Alliance Assessment. All these hazardous chemical screening lists may seem like striving for less bad rather than good, but they are also sparking innovations around the world. Imagine what would happen if we substituted all our fossil fuel-derived plastics with Brazilian company Brazchem's sugarcane ethanol-derived BioPE, which is polyethylene, and BioPP, which is polypropylene which removes up to 2.15 metric tons of CO2 for each ton of plastic produced. What if many of the plastics used in the automotive sector were replaced by a new latex-free material produced through a dry powder coating technology by French project Latex-Free? Or perhaps we could move to starches created by Ethiopian company Yaskai from NSET, a local plant. Another approach which Unido has been promoting is to move towards chemical leasing, where chemical manufacturers take responsibility for the safe recovery and disposal of the chemicals they sell. For example, in Colombia, a chemical leasing program between Ecopetrol and Nelco de Colombia resulted in a reduction of the costs of the treatment process by almost 20%, with savings of $1.8 million for Ecopetrol and $463,000 for Nelco. In Sri Lanka, chemical leasing between Wijaya Newspapers and General Inc. resulted in ink savings of around 15,000 kilograms, equivalent to approximately $50,000 per year. In Egypt, Delta Electrical Appliances, Axo Nobel Powder Coating and Chemital Italy reduced consumption of chemicals for pre-treatment chemicals by 15-20% to 20% and for powder coating by 50% as a result of chemical leasing. Will all these green chemistry initiatives revolutionize the industry? Cradle to cradle, previously mentioned in other episodes, hopes to do just that. Co-founder and German chemist Michael Braungart told me that when he was analyzing complex household products back in 1987, he identified 4,360 different chemicals in a TV set and concluded that it doesn't help to just take out any toxic stuff from it. Rather, products have to be redesigned so that all inputs are either biological nutrients that can harmlessly biodegrade, or technical nutrients that can endlessly be recycled safely. So does cradle-to-cradle represent the cutting edge of green chemistry? In my Top 50 Sustainability Books publication, I quote Michael Braungart as saying, I'm just talking about good chemistry, 
chemistry is not good when the chemicals accumulate in the biosphere. That's just stupid. Young scientists immediately understand that a chemical is not good when it accumulates in mother's breast milk. It's just primitive chemistry. So now we can make far better chemistry, far better material science, far better physics. End quote.